The Black Male Archives, where we capture, curate, and promote positive stories about black men. All right. Hey, everybody. Thank you again for joining me. I'm Rodney Freeman. I'm the host of the Black Male Archives podcast, and I have with me Orlando Taylor. Um, Orlando Taylor has a new book of poetry that's out, and we wanted to just pick his brain and see what he, you know, why he put this book out, his motivations, and his his uh, his story that led him to writing this. So again, Orlando Taylor, thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, how are you doing today? Thank you for having me. Appreciate. Thank you for having me. I'm doing well. It's, it's a pleasure to be here and to be amongst you and uh, to share with your listeners. I appreciate it. Seriously. Man, awesome. This is awesome. So tell me a little bit about yourself and where you're from. Well, I was originally uh, born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, kind of born in, uh, in that era, I guess, in the late 60s, you know, and went to you know, all the local high schools, you know, and it's kind of around the corner, basically from uh, Ferguson, you know, Missouri, where all the uh, things happened there. You have a sound Corey Banks, who's in Congress from that area. So that's, mm. that's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. So I grew up in that area around, you know, an era where, you know, we still had very strong communities, you know, together. It didn't matter. And I feel like there when I grew up, uh, people were not there was not a lot of condemnation for the type of family you came from. In other words, didn't matter whether you came from two parent home or, or one parent home. It's a black family. Mm-hmm. And I felt like people, uh, you know, in that era, we looked out for each other. We were there, uh, had a lot of strong men around me mm-hmm. who were not blood, who looked out for me. Mm-hmm. I remember a situation where I was going to this corner store uh, and I wasn't supposed to be going to the corner store. I almost got hit by a car and a brother from my block just happened to reach and grab me by my neck as I was crossing the street and almost got hit. And he was like, you know, you're not even supposed to be around here, but I'm eight. Mm-hmm. I think I'm grown, you know, yeah. as we do at eight years old. Yeah. But what I remember vividly about is just he was just the amount of sincere and honest concern he had for me as a, as a young person. He looked at as he looked at me as somebody he was responsible for. And I think yeah. We're getting back to that. I think it's out of that kind of um, atmosphere. I feel like that that helped me to flourish. You know, it helped me be a person who believed in education, you know, believed in reading, believed in writing, and who, who believed in uh, sharing what you had. And not, uh, you know, sometimes you feel like people gain knowledge and just want to keep it to themselves. And I feel like the, the best thing to do is to give that knowledge away so they can use it. Yeah. So in in this is interesting that you said, you know, talking about education and, and reading. What led you to become an author? I would say it was, it was, I would say it had to begin with my mom. When I was a kid, I was just, I was a uh, by the time I got to read, I was a voracious reader. She yeah. had problems keeping certain kinds of books out of my hands and it wasn't like I was just a bad kid. I was like when I'm done reading this, I need something else <laughs> to fulfill that that desire to read. And so I was such an avid reader that by the time I was like 13, 14 years of age, at that time, I don't know about library systems today, they used like at the old Drew Davis Library branch system in St. Louis, you had like tiers of cards. So you'd have a kid's card, yeah. you had a juvenile card, and you had yeah. an adult card. So I had to get an adult card because I had kind of exhausted the books of interest at the juvenile level. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so the, the, the librarian got on the phone and she was like, he wants this book. It's an adult section. It's not a bad book. You know, actually yeah. what it was, i tell you what it was. It was Just Above My Head by James Paul. Yeah. I wanted to read that book. And the librarian said, we have to get permission from your mom. And so my mom said, you know what? He's going to grab me out. So I'm going to go ahead and sign for him an adult card. And yeah. so, and we'll just have discussions if the library doesn't think it's Man, that is yeah. that is so that I don't mean to cut you off, but that is so wild. No, no, you no, said no. Julia Davis Library, right? Because mm-hmm. 
I actually worked at the Walnut Park Library. No, you didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah, that's in the, that's kind of in the same system, same yeah. neighborhood, generally exactly. speaking. So yeah, exactly. yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's, so it's one was, of those. Yeah, that's man, it was, crazy, it was at, man. And I used to walk, you know, because the old branches, you know, of uh, Junior Davis is on, on Marcus, yeah, on Natural Bridge. Yeah. So that that satellite, I think, is now a part of the community college system. I think that building. Mm-hmm. But it's funny, I used to walk down there religiously, you know, just yeah. go, go get books back in the day. So yeah. Man, this is this is wild. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so, so what six degrees of separation. You, I know, right? I know. <laughs> so what inspired you to write um write poetry? I think it, early on I was enamored by the Harlem Renaissance mm. and the writers, both male and females. I, I as a kid, I felt like this like I felt like they had like this magical uh hold or handle of words. And that was something I always want. I think as I got older, I just, I just wanted to be able to, to be able to use words powerfully. And as I got older, I started doing different readings, and I learned that in the African culture, people who are readers and writers, in, in particularly in ancient times, were looked at almost in a godly fashion. That mm-hmm. because they looked at people who can write and read, you're in communication with the gods. Mm-hmm. So it's like they were in awe, enamored, and they they uh, honored those people uh, in the community. And so. Mm-hmm. I feel like that still exists in the black community that we really do have an appreciation for writing and reading and we respect people who write and read well uh, and who are giving that to the people. You know, even to this day, it's not, it's, you know, children in high school still have an affinity for the Hall of Renaissance because we still teach that in a very passionate way because it was such a, it was such a prolific time for us to display our creativity when we were being told that we have nothing, we have nothing to offer. Right. You know, and so, and that influenced me. And then as I got older, you know, the topics that I recovered just influenced by just all the things that I experienced, you know, things that I see. And I know sometimes it's a difficult thing for people who want to talk about like the traumas that exist in the black community because mm-hmm. we've had so many things and we sometimes don't want to appear weak or mm-hmm. appear in issues yeah. uh, because because of those things, but we have to address those things. So, you know, the violence that I saw, you know, uh, whether it be, be just growing up the ups and downs, sometimes it's the political ups and downs that I cover, you know, the, uh, the politics that affected the black community, yeah. uh, the social issues, all those things I built it. So I built the book out in such a fashion where the first chapter set of book, uh, poems, I kind of look at, uh, or poems kind of reflective of my own emotional issues. Mm-hmm. Then the second, then the second section I look at, you know, kind of interactions between peoples in our community. And then the last one is, is kind of like my own voice speaking against the uh, social political issues that black people have deal with historically in this country. And then the last portion is a few uh, short stories, sci-fi mm-hmm. stories. Yeah. And so is this, is this your, is this your first um, book or is this, uh, is this been, tell us a little bit about your, your, your this is my first book. I've been writing uh, for the past 20 years, but I just haven't had found a vehicle, you know, uh, uh-huh. traditionally, you know, uh, the book, publishing business can be a, just a business of gatekeeping. Yeah. And there have been, and I think in the last 10 years, a lot of that gatekeeping uh, in the media industry, not only in books, but also film TV has been broken by a lot of independent streaming platforms and those things. And with this case, right. in this case, despite the beast that Amazon is, it has allowed individuals to uh, publish themselves and be more in control of mm. getting their content out there in a way that we haven't been able to do that. You know, right. a lot of, it's been it, sometimes it's own it, uh, the publishing uh, process has almost been a mystical process. 
Yeah. And you can write a book, you got a book, you like, you got to get it here, you got to get age, you got to get this, you got to get this. And by the time you get all those things, you know, it's it's almost like you're, you're an old man or old woman and you're out of the game, so yeah. to speak. So I think that has been, I would say that. So what I've been writing is just over time, writing poetry and, and keeping up with it. Sometimes I would, you know, pin open mics, you know, that have been out there or whatnot. I've had some poems included in anthologies and I just felt like this has been a lifelong dream, a lifelong journey to put something out there in the ether, not to like, hey, hear my voice, but to share in the voices that are calling for a, a different thought process and, and just sharing, you know, uh, as you know, not only with the Black Mirror Archives, I'm sure you've been exposed to other uh, platforms out there where people are really trying, Black men are really trying to engage with each other and address not only in, issues that are internal to themselves, but mm -hmm. the beautiful thing is they're trying to really get to the point where they're communicating, where we're communicating with each other in a more right. positive and, and, and constructive way, right. you know, and, and we feel together and we feel support of each other in a way, honestly, I feel a lot of times we should be unashamed to mirror what black women have done at mm -hmm. 15, 20 years the way they have really gone to school, they support each other. I mean, every time you see, I don't see toxicity of my success of black women. They're mm. always supporting each other. They're like, come on, sister, you doing your thing. When can we come out there to your business? Or how can we, I'm gonna post this all over the place because I love you, I'm gonna support. We just need to be, I think we need to, we need to, we need to steal that from them unashamedly and like just, just begin to be just kind of like this uh, red carpet for each other and, and, yeah. and share and, 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 and uplift each other in a way that we haven't as to. Man, you know, and, and I, I hear you so much on that. And I feel like there are so many misconceptions of black males, black men, black boys, what, you know, what have you, you know, and mm -hmm. actually there was a USA Today report about this, about black mm -hmm. men and how we, you know, are very, uh, we were viewed as criminals most of the, most of the time. Um, but let's talk about the misconception of black men writing poetry do you feel okay. like that there is something out there um or there yeah. is still this narrative that black men can't write poetry i think yes and no because we we look we accept the poetry or the poetic form in hip-hop right mm. and so the, that that is that is almost 95 percent black men you know mm. generally speaking who are, are are who are held in that in that space mm-hmm Despite we have, you know, some strong people like Lil Sims from the UK, we have Sister Rhapsody, Nitty Scott, another sister by the name of Star Rock from out this way. Very mm -hmm. powerful, very strong sisters in the game of hip hop. But at the same time, black men, like you look at a, a, a artist like Nas, I, I, a lot of his work, I look at a lot of his lyrics are very poetic at the same mm -hmm. time. They're very powerful in the hip hop form. Mm -hmm. So I think, but but I think in a literary in the literary literary scene, it does feel sometimes that black men are not looked at as being capable. You have a lot of people who uh, seem to look at us and, and, and look at us from the standpoint. We focus on, say, for instance, sexual poetry, or we focus strictly on anger poetry that simply expresses the anger. But mm -hmm. it, we, 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 it, I think as things are changing for black men, we're beginning to express ourselves in different ways. This is why you find uh, writers and artists in the film industry who are writing uh, uh, films that stew, say, for instance, a film like Moonlight or mm -hmm. films like Underground. These things are really trying to get at the heart of things. And these are black men who are writing these things. And I think there's a change in the process that's already going. And I think, I'm, I believe that in the next 10, 10 years, you're gonna have a, 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 a very strong literary and creative push amongst black men as we, as we address a lot of these things. 
because a friend I was talking we were talking about is kind of a similar thing how people complain say for instance about a lot of the new hip hop artists some people call them mumble rappers you know a lot of them mm-hmm. caught up in the, in the in the trap music sound mm-hmm. and he said it's interesting he says the interesting timeline if you look at how in black schools as black neighborhoods were defunded we hate that term let's use it in a different way black right. education was being defunded at the same time black education in black neighborhoods education was being defunded that affected music and you had you had that rise you also had a rise in individuals who's whose artistic value was really just based on the side of monetization. Mm-hmm. But you start having less and less of the people who are really, uh, I could say who really were into the musicality of the particular genre they were in. So you start getting less and less Nas and more and more say Littles and Youngs and Rose and Droves or whatever, whatever yeah. that is. <laughs> Baby. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, you know, music that really, honestly, that doesn't last very long. Yeah. You know, it's not going to be here 20 years. 20 years from now, the youth who are 20 now will be listening to our music because their music won't be, their music won't stand up, you know, mm. in general, in many instances mm. because of that. Man. That's my perspective. And I know that they may cause some people to be upset, but that's okay. My, that, that's okay because this is your your opinion, and I, I'm yeah, and we're we happy to have that. And I think it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's needed and needs to be out there, you know, and uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you too is like, you know, um, why do you think the book that you put out right now too, why, why is it relevant to today? And I think you touched on that a little bit, but can you kind of go into it a little bit more? Sure. Detail? I think because it's, because I'm talking about in the book, um, uh, my scars are my birthmark because it's like the scars, we sometimes I feel in the black community, black men run away mm. from my trauma. Mm-hmm. Because we talked about earlier, uh, earlier how a lot of times in order to appear strong, you can never show, you can never show them. And I think right. that's been a false narrative that's lived too long in the black male psyche. Yeah, that you can't. Uh, and and honestly, some of the most weakest moments is when you can be strong. And yeah, because one person it's similar to saying you you can you cannot succeed without fail. Mm-hmm. So you cannot you cannot grow strong without having moments of weakness. Mm-hmm. Because there's a, in that moment of weakness you're realizing there's a change that you possibly need to make either physically, mentally, or spiritually so that mm-hmm. you can go beyond and get to that next moment that you need to get to. Man. And I think that's that's part of it. And I think, like we were talking about how a lot of these, like you have all these various podcasts happening across the diaspora, you know, trying to look at these things. So I think, I'm hoping that it resonates with black men in general, not only mm-hmm. black men who are saying ginger loving or gay, but black men in general because Despite that fact, many of the issues that we experience are parallel, you know, uh, despite, you know, our sexual orientation might be different. The issues when a police officer, you know, when police officer, police officer come over, he doesn't immediately say, are you gay or are you straight? Because that, that's going to determine how I treat you. No, he immediately sees you are a black man or a black woman. And that determines how they think about you, how they process you and how they treat you forward. And so I believe that in that realm and as black people, you know, discuss the various political issues, you know, and I look at some of those things, you know, in the poems that I have, I, I think that's what makes it so relevant that it is a, a parody, you know, a tangent to many of the spiritual and emotional things people are going through and feeling right now. Man, that's so powerful. And you, you're absolutely right. It's all about the mental and, you know, and changing that narrative of how they looked at it. I mean, so, so powerful. Let's go back because you, you, you're from St. Louis. Yes, and, sir. and you remember when Michael Brown 
mm -hmm. uh, was uh, was killed. And mm -hmm. then they did. And then maybe weeks or months later, they interviewed the, the police officer that shot him. Mm -hmm. And he said that he saw this demon coming at him. He didn't. Right. He didn't. He didn't see a man. Right. He, he, right. he saw he saw a demon coming out. Yeah. That, yeah. 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 And, and, and it's know, two and, things. It's two things there. But go ahead and finish your point. I, I two things came to mind. But go ahead and finish. Your and point. you know, and that is why you know I'm uh, you know I'm glad you said what you just said because it's like we have to be able to start showing these these stories, these narratives that you know you know from from the mainstream media of of who we are. We have to really take back that. That, yeah. that control and show them that you know we are you know we do write poetry or do we do play video games or we are coders or we are fathers. we think that we are thinkers and that we are compassionate people and that we have we there's more to us ultimately there's more to us because a lot of black men i've had to sometimes counsel younger brothers that i come in contact with that there's more to you than your body right you you know as a black man how the black male body has been fetishized even sometimes even in the black community mm -hmm. a lot of times the darker your skin are and more muscular you are, the stronger you are immediately in the black community. And that has been, and that, that's a fetish that also exists in the white sphere as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, you know, kind of speaking to what you were saying, that thing where, where the, he said, okay, he was a demon. It's go back to what D.O. Hughley once said that, that one of the most dangerous places for a black man or a black person to exist is a white person. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's one thing, it's like you can't, it, it's, it's one of those funny things. On one hand, they constantly talk about how we're not, we don't measure up, correct? That we don't measure up intellectually, we don't measure up physically, we don't measure up spiritually. Uh, I've heard many of our races say that if a war were to break out, black folks would be the media about that they're weak, they can't handle it. But then we saw what happened on January 6th and that kind of changed the narrative. Are we strong? Who is strong? Then we look at things such as, okay, you look at, okay, okay, so if we're in strong there, but then, if we're so weak and we're so strong and so weak in that perspective, then how is it that we're such monsters that we're you're afraid of us at the time that you can see a little boy like Tamir Rice and immediately see he's an adult and should kill him before you find out any information? So you can't have it both ways. So that honestly, that speaks to the psychosis that some racist white people have. That you you have two thoughts that are trying to fight each other constantly inside of your head about who and what black people are, and they don't match, and they don't match. And that's why you have, I honestly believe, that's why you have such a psychotic uh, atmosphere in the Southeast among some of the you know, white racist administrations that exist. Yeah, because it doesn't add up, right? You know, it don't you add know. up. You can't, you can't be a monster at the same time, right? And somebody who's who's striking fear in everybody's life, and then on the other side, you're this individual who just you're doesn't superhuman. Make you up. You're a superman, right. but then at the same time, <laughs> they they say you're so weak as a black. Right. If you're if you're a black person, you're so weak. You're so uneducated. You're incapable of, of measuring up to the same level of education yeah. uh, or aptitude as certain kinds of white. So you know you, you you can't have it both ways. So it's funny how you get those kinds of you get these kinds of things. Like I said, they just don't add up. And now I think in this wave or age of social media, mm -hmm. a lot of these issues are being addressed more immediately because we have cameras and we have ways to keep dressed. And people talk about black Twitter all the time. Our black, our black Twitter don't find out, you know, it's mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think those types of things, they can be negative sometimes, but I think generally speaking, they have been a very positive force in, for the black community to accomplish things, to move, to communicate and to get things done, whether it's in the community or outside. It's been a, a beautiful thing. And, and now they're seeing that, you know, uh, particularly with a black woman, you know, 
you, this country wouldn't know what to do if it hadn't been for the black woman who lasted. And it doesn't discount black men at all. Black men did their thing. And mm -hmm. black women have shown in the past 10 years, they've been on this beautiful arc where they have been supporting issues in our communities in ways that they're in school, that they're building businesses. And I'm hoping that less and less black men look at that as an indictment against them and look at that just as, you know, these are just people in our community who are showing Oh, and because it's a black woman. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that you you when you when you spark you sparked um um I don't know what to call it, but it made me think of basically what's going on with uh, the immigrants um with the uh, Haitian people. What were you okay. talking about? You can't have it both ways. And and looking right. at looking at the country's policies, right? When mm -hmm. it comes to treating the lighter you are, you get mm -hmm. refugees, you get asylum over in America, and the darker you are. So, what, well, what you can look at directly at look at the situation. I knew what you're getting to. You're trying to yeah. get to around it. You look. You're talking about what happened to the Afghanistans versus what's happened to the Haitians. That's what you get. Exactly. I can, I, I can hear it in your spirit. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's <laughs> obvious. That's an obvious. I mean, in, in other platforms of poverty, but you're right. There was a there was a stark, you know, difference in how you know the Africans coming from. And, and the thing is, those Africans who were Haitian were not coming from Haiti. They were coming from these people who these people had been in uh, Central and South America for over ten years because they'd mm -hmm. come here before. They were looking to migrate, you know, immigrate, you know, further into places because many. It's a complex. I won't say it's complex. I'm gonna take that word back. It's a layered. It's a layered conversation because though many of those Haitians. Who were coming into the United States are coming from countries where they were under social and economic pressures because they were black in those in those uh, Hispanic, mm -hmm. Hispanic countries. So there are layers, you know. Over time, you know, Brazil is the largest African population outside of the continent. If you didn't know, mm -hmm. a lot of people think it's the United States. It's not. So the largest mm -hmm. population of Africans outside the continent reside in uh, in Brazil, mm -hmm. uh, and you know. Um, so you've had this, you know, you've had these strong conversations, you have the strong culture, you know, of our people in South and Central America for, for centuries. But those Haitians were coming from, because of situations before, from the floods and earthquakes 10 years ago, they had immigrated to various parts of South America and they were trying to immigrate further because of continuing issues, unfortunately, that Africans and diaspora continue to have to deal with, whether it's not being employed as well, not being able to find education because you are looked at as an other in a non-African country. That's what that was. Man, and we can, I know we can go on all day and talk about Oh, that. for sure, man. I appreciate you having <laughs> me on this platform. I'm, yeah. I'm, we could this has been great for me. Yeah, and this, this is this is awesome because I think our listeners need to know this and I, I'm glad that we had you on where you're showing, you know, your poetry and talking about your poetry, but also sh showing your your you're uh, versatile when talking about, you know, what's going on with current issues, current um, news stories too, right? So Right. And I think as a writer, you, you, you have to be able to do that because I think mm -hmm. one thing I learned going to school and working on my master's degree in writing, mm -hmm. um, one thing that it taught me is that you have to be well-versed in order to be right well. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I had a white, I even had a white female, we talked about a comment, she said, one of the things growing up as a writer for herself dealing with white males is that she found she had to really speak out loud because a lot of them write strictly for white men and they write strictly from a white male perspective and her challenge was how is it that how can you consider yourself to be a writer 
if you can only write in one voice. Mm. And that's the white male gaze. So you can't just write in that voice. You have to be able to, you know, so now I'm working on not only the poetry you asked earlier, uh, as a part of my uh, company, Kumba Concepts, www.kumbaconcepts.com. Uh, we are trying to, you know, get ourselves uh, talent, agent, everyone to help us. And we're working on getting some of our, our television and film ideas in front of the right people to get them out there. Because uh, we want to write content that speaks to the diaspora, that speaks to not only our past and our present, but also what we can do and accomplish. So that's that's where I'm hoping to be in the future. Man, that's awesome. Man, tell me a little bit, because I, I thought I saw somewhere that you do comics and stuff like that, too. Is that? That's what we're working on. That's part okay. of the whole. Uh, what we want to do is be in all forms of media. And so we're working on comics. We have you know working on ideas for animation, film, television. So we want to be where black people like to read and write and think and see experience because as you know a lot of that's a big thing even on the continent they're really looking at how we can do that bring build the industry even though you have such as like nollywood nigeria's kind of seen it's it makes a lot of money but it doesn't make a lot of quality films you'll find mm -hmm. that discussion a lot you know they make a lot of films but a lot of them are low budget uh less than micro budget and not so great quality and so they're trying to turn the corner on that in many parts of the continent where they're building studios and trying to also build the talent to really create, uh, to really support the talent that can help bring the various narratives, ideas, histories, stories and culture of the continent to the world. Because you'd be surprised. It's one of the things I've learned talking with people, not only in the United States, but also on the continent, that everybody needs to be educated. And even people sometimes you find, I know, uh, my background is Nigerian. You know, I did my DNA test. So I've learned and talking to people, they're not as, just like over here in the United States, you talk about sometimes the naivete and the lack of education. Sometimes African-Americans have about their own history. It exists in the diaspora. Yeah. So you'll find those who are very knowledgeable and you'll find that a large part of the population is not as knowledgeable as it needs to be. And that's where we want to fill that gap. Yeah, man, that's so powerful, man. I'm glad we had you on there. Um, I appreciate you having me. Man, just tell the tell the listeners how they can follow you and just keep up with what okay. you're doing. Right. So my uh, Instagram account is right there on the screen, Olaurun underscore King. That's a name that was given to me by a friend. Basically, Olaurun just means one who's rich in spirit, you know, rich as a world. And um, you can reach me at my website, www.kumbaconcepts, as in the Nguza Saba from uh, Kwanzaa. So kumbaconcepts.com. And we're there. We're trying to make moves for art, for, not just for ourselves, but for the Orlando Taylor, thank you for being on the Blackmail Archives podcast. Thank you for having me, man. I wish man, you all the success. Continue man, I, to do this. I appreciate you, man. We Where we capture, curate, and promote positive stories about Black men, which you are one of. So we appreciate this, man. We're going to have to follow up with you. And Please. I know you're going to be doing good work. So we definitely follow up with you, man. So thank you again all right. for being on the podcast. Same to you. And I wish everybody well. All right. Thank you.